4: i wanted to just start out with a little introductory thought. It was about 57 years ago, when Bob Dylan famously enraged folk music purists by going electric. What might those people say today when they learn that he sold his song catalog to a multinational <laughs> conglomerate for nearly $400 million? <laughs> in the past few years, the value of these assets has really soared to previously unimagined heights with publishing in particular, seeing multiples well over 20 times their current market value.
5: You know, we should explain how your company makes money, which from what I could tell is a mix of sponsorships and commerce. Uh, Why at this, I guess, early stage, is that not enough to be self-sustaining?
6: It sounds like walking in the door, you saw IP. You saw the potential for IP, which is the, you know, seemingly the most valuable commodity on earth. And it seems like right there walking in the door, you were marrying, you you know, you were bringing together your experience and knowing how to, how the levers of media and television and entertainment work. Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, co-editor in chief of Variety. I'm one of three rotating hosts of this podcast, I share it with my longtime colleagues, Andrew Wallenstein, President and Chief Media Analyst for Variety Intelligence Platform, and Shirley Halperin, Variety's Executive Editor of Music. This is our 2022 highlights reel. Having three of us share hosting duties ensures that we cover a lot of industry ground. We keep it focused on conversations about the biz end of showbiz. Making money, spending money, building brands, pouncing on M&A, and rethinking old strategies. That's what we love around here. We're not afraid to go deep or go wonky. We get the best feedback sometimes when we dive into intricate business issues that are changing fast. We started the year with Shirley's conversation with Splice founder and CEO Steve Martosi in a conversation about how technology is helping music creators. From there, we headed to the heartland for a conversation with Allison Page, head of TV for Chip and Joanna Gaines' Magnolia Network. And then we moved on to the highest-ranking female executive in the video game industry, Laura Maielli, Chief Operating Officer of Electronic Arts. We've had CEOs from all over the map, including Mattel, FX, and Wondery. We've had the leader of a startup media company aimed at kids, Seema Zargami of Mimo Studios, and we've had the leader of a startup aimed at senior citizens, Saltbox TV CEO Jerry Gehring. We've had a stream of business-focused producers, Peaky Blinders' Karen Mandebach, Michael Ellenberg from Apple's Pachinko, Charles Roven of Sony Pictures Uncharted, William Sherrick, Jason Blum. Over at the Mouse House, we've checked in with the head of ESPN, Jimmy Patero, and the former head of the now-departed Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution Unit, Kareem Daniel. In the funny way the world works, within a few months, we had an interview with Dan McDermott, the new content chief for AMC Networks, and then we spoke with the executive who had his job a few years ago, David Madden, who's now overseeing content development for Wattpad Webtoon Studios. One of my favorite sit-downs this year was in the living room of CNBC correspondent Julia Borston. Julia wrote this year's coolest nonfiction business book, When Women Lead. We're happy she made Strictly Business one of the first stops on her launch campaign.
7: It's been interesting, like looking at the data about leading and managing in crisis. Women have amazing performance managing in crisis, especially if you think about the the financial crisis, managing through the pandemic, and and in some ways they're leading very differently than male CEOs. But in other ways, maybe male CEOs. Are trying to emulate or should try to emulate them particularly in times of crisis when say things like empathy matter matter more both to employees and customers so i think that um the overwhelming thing that struck me in interviewing hundreds of people and and reading all these academic studies is that while we may have a couple of ideas of what leadership looks like or what good leadership looks like in fact there are many different skills that can be used for good leadership and the the leaders who are most successful were those who didn't try to force themselves into this box or this stereotype or try to fit a model of what leadership looked like in the 70s (laughs) but instead were saying here's what i'm really good at and here's how i can hire people around me to fill in the things that i know nothing about and here's how i can lean into the things that i'm really good at
6: don't go anywhere we'll be back with more annotated highlights of the year that was
3: By visiting musicgives.org.
4: This is Shirley Halperin, Executive Editor of Music at Variety. In early May, I represented Strictly Business at the Milken Institute Global Conference in Beverly Hills, where I led a panel with top music industry players on the rise of the hundreds of millions of dollars of music catalog sales. I asked some tough questions about whether these valuations are really sustainable. You'll hear some of this conversation, starting with Scott Piscucci, CEO of Concord Music. He'll be followed by observations on deal making and what matters to artists from Cherise Clarsois, founder and CEO of Harborview Equity Partners, and Harvey Mason Jr., CEO of the Recording Academy.
8: Implicit in your question is the very current focus on catalogs and catalog acquisition, right? It's not just, is music sexy? Music is sexy, art is sexy. But what is new is the focus of Wall Street on buying catalogs, valuing them, talking about it. And I think what gets lost in the last couple of years of frenetic activity is that for the companies in the music industry, we have been buying and building catalogs for decades. So it's really Wall Street's focus on the, on the business and the opportunity that's new. And on the one hand, it's nice that Wall Street has taken the time to learn our business and to figure out what the attractiveness of our catalogs are, because they are extraordinary. But at the same time, it has created a level of frenetic frothiness, which is, I think, also
9: implicit in your question.
4: What are the motivations of the sellers, of the artists, and and of the buyers?
9: Look, I think there's a natural lifespan of these artists. And, you know, they reach a certain age where they want to make sure that their legacy is being preserved in the proper way and that they can... Do a transaction where they know that well after they're here, these songs are going to be treated in the way that they would want them to be treated if they were still around. And I think finding the right partner is very important. There's, you know, obviously the the financial reasons. There's, you know, great opportunities for people to sell and enjoy the fruits of their labor late in life. There's estate planning, there's tax treatments that are favorable. I think all of those things factor in. I think it depends on who the person is that's selling, You know, particularly on the deals that we've done. What's been great about it is that we felt like it's not necessarily bidding war type situations, it's these people have wanted to be with us. Mm-hmm. And we take that responsibility very seriously.
8: I think, arcing off of what Mark said, as everybody in the panel knows, there is a lot of increased liquidity in music catalogs now, right? There are more buyers, there's more buying and selling. But they are not as liquid as, you know, if I die tomorrow, resolving my estate is a fairly straightforward process. If you have an enormous music catalog when you pass, you are leaving your children, your heirs, a bundle of responsibilities that they may not want and they may not be prepared for. And it's not, even if you have, you know, counterparties like labels and publishers who are doing 95% of the work, the 5% of the work is a lot and requires experience. And not every family wants that responsibility. So in a period where multiples are high, I think that a lot of artists like Dylan and others are looking at their legacy and saying, my legacy is a creative legacy. My legacy is also a financial legacy and it's a business and it has a team of people that run that business and when we're not here anymore, who's gonna run it or does it make more sense for me to reduce it to more fungible assets so that my heirs can enjoy that without taking on the responsibility that I chose to take on as an artist 60 years ago.
10: There is a lot of factors that go into how you size a purchase price, inclusive of age, inclusive of you know, quality of um, earning streams, inclusive of diversification. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And sometimes, you know, especially in conversations like this, it's super easy because the science is boring. I am a science geek. I grew up in the financial (laughs) markets, but I did play the piano for 15 years. Um, But so the science is boring. It takes too long to to discuss. So that's why we all shorthanded and talk about 15, 20, 25, 30, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is there's a lot more that goes into it. And sometimes what's unfortunate for our expectations is that that's all they hear. And so they don't hear the nuance that goes into the conversation. But that being said, we really try to focus on having a very agnostic view as it relates to genre, as it relates to type of music that we're buying. We really try to focus on looking, using the science to drive decision making. And I think what that's allowed us to do is actually see things that other people don't necessarily see, like we sort of have this saying internally that the world is round, it's not flat, which means it's not only the things that you see in the four corners of your universe, but it's really about the fact that there's a whole global experience. And sometimes the music that I love is not the music that you love, it's not the music that you love, but that's perfectly fine. And that allows us to see and engage with creators that some people here may never have even heard of, but also allows us to engage with all the names that we've all heard of. So tying all that together means that everything is not all the same. We put all that together to come up with a point of view on what we think is the right point of view to pay for something, and we try to treat it with the respect that it deserves.
4: Let's talk about the future of of music and as a commodity, NFTs, The metaverse, Web3, these are terms that are being thrown around a lot these days. Sharice, you've said this and I think it's kind of brilliant that we're in the MySpace stage
10: when it comes to music in the metaverse. <laughs> I think that's I think that's 100% true, but let me give credit where appropriate credit is due. My dear friend, Morgan De Bruin, who started, who's the CEO and founder of Blavity, is the one that told me that, and I completely believe that. We know that it's coming. It's here, we're hearing it, we're feeling it, but we don't know exactly what it's gonna look like. So we're still really early days on What the monetization model is. How will we all engage? Are we all going to walk around with headsets on our heads for a long (laughs) period of time? Are we going to go to work like that? Like these are questions that we're all asking ourselves. Who's going to engage? Is it communities? Is it communities around gaming? Is it communities around children? So I think we're still very much so learning what this new segment of technology is gonna do, but I do think it's coming. I do believe that NFTs and or blockchain is a really engaged and interesting way for creators to be have a better seat at the table. I don't know if we have the exact, again, monetization model that we all think is gonna be the right way. But for example, I literally was just having this conversation with someone earlier today where they were talking about how they've tried to participate in t- in the Nas NFT that was offered. And it was like really exciting for them as a fan to sponsor the content mm-hmm. and to pr- help to promote the content in that way, even if they never necessarily made back 100 cents on the dollar in terms of what they invested in from the NFT. But that engagement and that crowdsourcing from the community and in partnership with some of your favorite artists is, I think, a really interesting one. So I think we're still early days on how we'll see all of this stuff come together. But I do think that it's coming. And for yeah, people think to ignore it, I think, is a long
11: thing. Early days is a great way to put it. And I do think it's going to continue to grow. But I would say it's absolutely here. We're seeing the desire for music. And we talked about it earlier. Music's omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's in all these platforms. Uh, at the Academy this year, for the first year, and just as a reminder, I've been the CEO for about 18 months, under two years. And one of the first things I did when I came in, I said, how is music going to be involved in all these new platforms and formats and how can we make sure we're on the cutting edge of that and make sure that we're looking out for the music community, which is really our our mission and our job and all of our creators and members.
6: At the mid-year point, the markets were looking brutal, especially for media and tech shares. S&P Global Ratings Senior Director Naveen Sarma spoke insightfully with Andy about long-term changes in the media sector. At that time, Coming off the May meltdown of stocks and the crypto market, Variety and Andy's VIP team also collaborated on a special report on this muddy situation. It's available still for free download. All you have to do is Google Variety and how to survive a bear market. You'll find it.
12: Ultimately, when we think about consumer spending and we think about the media sector, we're really thinking about how the consumers feel about spending because consumer spending represents two thirds of the US GDP. Um, If consumers feel stressed and stretch and they choose to cut back on spending, that ultimately um, will impact the the media and entertainment sector, even if there isn't a recession. Um, I I think one of the things that we have to consider is, is consumers change behavior, sometimes permanently due to stresses. We certainly saw that during the Great Recession and we certainly saw that during the pandemic. In the case of the pandemic, we saw an acceleration in secular trends um, which you, you and I have talked a lot um, about these trends, you know, whether it's cord cutting, it's the move to streaming, it's the shift of advertising from you know, traditional um, uh, you know, media to digital, all of those things accelerated during the pandemic. Um, if we get in another economic downturn, we certainly think that that could reaccelerate those trends again.
5: If there was one recurring theme that I kept hitting on time and again in the podcast interviews I did this year, it was what it's like for producers to deal with the streaming giants. On the one hand, companies like Netflix and Apple mean there's more deep-pocketed buyers for programming than ever before. On the other hand, streaming services have enormous leverage in those negotiations, Fresh off her Netflix hit Peaky Blinders, veteran TV producer Karen Mandebach talked with me about what it's like operating as a small, independent entity in this space. Then there was Michael Ellenberg, who's been on both sides of the table, having previously worked at HBO before segueing to his own company, which produced the Apple TV Plus series Pachinko. But first, let's hear from William Sherrick, producer of the action movie Ambulance, but how he decides which movies are best to produce for streaming or for theaters. A limited series, is it? The Night Agent set up at Netflix as well. It's it's a busy year. Busy um, year. What is the next phase of growth for your company?
13: Um, You know, we kind of look at it in different phases. I think phase one, because, you know, Jamie, Paul, and I, my two partners, um, have all been doing this for a pretty long time. It was proving to ourselves in the industry that as a partnership, the three of us could be successful in sort of what you would call the traditional producing, you know, the traditional producing ways, developing material, getting it out in the marketplace, getting them made, having them be successful. I think year one and two proved that, you know, Scream came out, was was successful. We're super excited. We're getting a sequel. We'll shoot this summer. Um, Ambulance. I could not be more proud of as well. you know, we put it together. it's a it's a great piece of material with an amazing filmmaker and stars and Universals really happy and they've been an unbelievable partner. Our first TV show is a series at Netflix that Sean Ryan created with us um, based on a book we optioned called
14: The Night Agent. Not to compare myself uh, in any way to George Lucas, but if you if you did a great and family at the center of, of what we're talking about, if you did a great hit, You you don't know the manifestations. You don't know that there'll be DVDs. You don't know that there'll be laser toys. You really, you know, you don't know, but you ask questions. So I just asked everybody, what do you think? Because people here in England uh, go to a bar mitzvah dressed up as as a Peaky Blinder. There are weddings right around my neighborhood, all Peaky Blinder themed. They embody the feeling of the Peaky Blinders so deeply. The haircuts, you know, I went to Paris the other day and some waiter said to me something and I just looked and I said, I bet you're a Peaky Blinder. He said, yeah, I am. And he said, but if my father ever knew I was talking to you, and I said, tell me more. He said, my father and I don't speak except for we talk about Peaky Blinders.
5: I don't know that I'm necessarily seeing much differentiation in the current landscape. It just seems like because of the volume of all the content out there, everybody's buying everything. Am I reading it wrong? Do you get a clear sense of like, no, this company's looking for X, this company's looking for Y? I think, Andrew, super well stated your question. I, I think what's mo- what's probably more relevant now about the streamers is what they share in common, right, in that regard, um, which is, um, you know, they're all doing sufficient volume that it's hard to say there's a sh- you know, with, with some exceptions at each place, you know, but, but that there's really a show that would only land somewhere. Uh, That said, um, these companies, we believe in the human factor. Like, human beings matter. The human beings who do these jobs matter. We'll
4: hear from Larry Mistel of Primary Wave Entertainment, who sounds like the ambitious Brooklyn Board businessman that he is, as he explains why the market for music catalogs is so red hot in an interview with Deputy Music Editor, Jem Oswad.
0: the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
5: We have somewhere now between fifty and 60,000 copyrights. Our competitors have You know, 3 million, 4 million, 2 million. I don't, by the way, our competitors are all good. But you can't possibly market 3 or 4 million copyrights. Mm -hmm. You can't. We can market 50 to 60,000 copyrights and tell an artist they're going to be a priority.
6: In my job, I enjoy nothing more than making new contacts and learning new things about how this industry works. Three of my favorite episodes along those lines this year were conversations with Susan Brandt, the CEO of Dr. Seuss Enterprises, Henry Munoz, the activist entrepreneur who bought the comedy streamer Funny or Die, and Jeff Stotland, who runs the growing Hollywood studio lot business for Hudson Pacific. You are working with content that is beyond this, you know the original canon of what Dr. Seuss left left. How do you, what is the gut check? How do you determine the quality to control that this is worthy of the Seuss brand?
14: I think um, you have to pick your partners really carefully uh, in any venture, whether obviously, you know, you're making t-shirts or a cruise ship uh, partnership. You've got to make sure, and we try to make sure it's always best in class, And that's where meeting that team, uh, seeing what they've done before, having discussions about how they might utilize the property. That's where your gut comes in. Um, And then I think you trust, you know, those partners. You really do. There is a sense of letting go Um, you if you do find and you find the experts and your gut tells you that's the right team, you know, you, we understand the DNA of it. They understand the expertise of their genre. You have to let them go. And so there is a bit of a leap of faith, um, that says, I'm, I'm going to give you this, this property and you're going to, you're going to caretake it. There's checkpoints for sure. Um, you know, all the way, I'm very actively involved in the major entertainment deals. So I'll work with the, 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 uh, producing parties, the creative teams on films, on television, even the cruise ships, but all the way down, you know, every member of the team is touching those products.
6: Henry, let's take a step back and tell us about the business, the different businesses that you have built and sort of the operation that you had that allowed you to do the Funny or Die deal.
15: (laughs) Well, I've never been involved in a business that I was educated to undertake. So (laughs) uh, when I was a very young man, uh, I was, um, Living in Texas, I'd gone back to Texas after college because my father had gotten sick, and somehow out of that experience, found myself in architecture. I'm not a trained architect, but I think at this point I'm a really good architect of change, and and that business, um, in combination with some my political activity. You know, I had a great I had a great mentor. Her name was Ann Richards. She was funny, mm-hmm. right, and she used her big personality to create change, to create a new Texas. And I was a part of that movement. I was the transportation commissioner for the state of Texas for almost four years. Very, I was very young. And it taught me a lot about the difficulties of moving institutions and bureaucracies forward. It also taught me that the stories of my people, of my community, weren't the stories that were in museums or archives or libraries. It taught me a lot about if you're going to build a building, design a, a university, for example, that it's important that that university look like the people that we're hoping to inspire. So that started about a 30 year journey to try and imprint on the built environment, on architecture and urban planning, the cultural traditions, the history, the storytelling of Latinos in this country. That led me to um, the board of the National Board of the Smithsonian Institution. I'm very happy that I just was elected the chairman of, of the newest board, which is the board to create the National Museum of the American Latino. And that is what introduced me to President Obama. And President Obama really was the person who taught me that I could change create massive change in cultural institutions and businesses. So uh, long story short, I found myself working to change healthcare in New York City, and that has been eight years now, and I'm not a doctor, but um, I have learned how to create a closer connection between a very confusing system and people in this country And in particular, people who don't necessarily speak English, just like my grandmother, um, when she needed medical attention. And Mm -hmm. uh, we've figured out a way to do it uh, at a more affordable cost and improving quality and doing what really needs to happen, which is allowing working people to have the same approach to wellness and preventative care and not to wait until it's too late to get into the hospital. So I have built a business in Texas and built a business in New York. Both of them are involved in this kind of intersection, right? Mm-hmm. Of design and politics or government. And, and now I want to do what has not been done, I think, in, in the entertainment industry is to bring that same kind of leadership, ownership, and um, inclusiveness to entertainment on behalf of the Latino community, communities of color, gay people.
6: Let me ask you, in the big picture, how has scale benefited? How has the scale of adding more properties and now, you know, the potential for Quixote, and forgive me, that deal is done, that is a done deal. So adding Quixote, how has scale helped you?
11: Scale, I would say, is at the core of our strategy. And the reason is because ultimately, you know, we believe that having the assets in the right markets and the right services is really important to the studios as those studios get bigger and their their businesses become more complex and they're shooting in multiple geographies um multiple types of in content, multiple languages and multiple I mean, languages local
6: language is the thing
11: all of it yeah exactly and and so that you can imagine is that I mean, it's incredibly complicated, right? And so they're co-financing stuff, they have different partners, but what they really want is almost an easy button for some aspect of their business. And so the way you know we look at this, the way I really look at this, is we're in the picks and shovels business. We're in the business of providing picks and shovels for the studio folks to go produce their content and mine for gold, to come up with that next amazing piece of content. And so how can we make it easier for them to do that? Whether you're filming in you know, geographically, wherever around the world, whatever services you need, how do we make it as easy as possible so that you, know, you don't need to make 20 phone calls, you don't need to go figure out how to go you know, put together all the picks and shovels to go produce this content. So scale is a way to do that, right? You can't, you can't make it easier unless you have those assets and you have that scale. Right. And so that's really a big part of the strategy and really fundamentally underscoring our acquisition of some of these companies. And
6: being in all those markets. And being in all those markets. And
11: you know, that that really is it. And and listen, it's not, you know, me talking about this is not revealing some secret sauce. I I think a lot of people would agree that collecting those assets in those key markets, it's kind of obvious, right? it's just super hard to pull it off. <laughs> right. And that's in the, the secret sauce of what we do is our ability to invest in and operate real estate and operating companies. And what you'd find is that in the world, there's not a lot of people who have the the ability to sort of speak and, and, and execute real estate and also speak and execute operating businesses. And that's really what this industry is. And that's really where the opportunity is to scale this hybrid business to ultimately simplify the lives of all the people producing content. So this, this fundamental belief we have, and listen, there's gonna be dips and ups with content production and we can all debate about how much is gonna get produced, right. who knows? I, I couldn't tell you what's gonna happen next week, let alone next year, but <laughs> I will say this, we do have very strong conviction that the amount of volume is not really gonna go down ultimately over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, the world needs more content. And we have conviction on that.
6: This year, I was so happy to be out and about in the field again with my Zoom recorder and microphone in hand. I was happy to deliver what, for me, were very special episodes of Strictly Business in June and August. I went to two fan conventions and spoke to young media consumers in the wild about what they watch, how they watch, when they watch, and how they discover new content. Every single encounter I had was eye-opening for me, and I hope my selections were enlightening for listeners as well. First, we'll hear from the Voices of VidCon episode, recorded in June on a very hot day in Anaheim, California. The second clip comes from the K-pop culture fandom event KCON, held at the Los Angeles Convention Center in August.
12: Um, Well, I think nowadays, like social media is just like, you know, a very glorified word of mouth. So it's, I find things just through other people sharing things and that's what I really like about the internet is uh, it's a lot of cool entertainment comes up like in a non-corporate setting where it's very organic and genuinely entertaining where I think in older media, you had to, you know, be big and corporate and have advertising money. So yeah, I find everything through social media and just hearing what people are talking about.
2: I think you just see like one video or like one compilation of them and you just, you find them, they're like their profiles and you go from there and like a, like a domino effect kinda, you see one thing, you go to more, 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 uh, yeah, uh then you end up here.
11: I also find a lot of people through word of mouth, like online, I'll get friends that DM me about like, oh, look at this person's stream, they're so cool, look at this video, it's blowing up right now and stuff like that. And also just like randomly deep diving because like the algorithm for like YouTube and Twitch both are very, in a way, able to push out new things and new content.
14: I came to KCON because I want to support AT's and In Enhypen and I thought it would be a lot of fun as a longtime K-pop fan to be around other K-poppers and um, to get to do high touch with AT's and In Enhypen. I've learned that the high touch is when you go up when they all go down the line. Yeah, so it's usually like a high five or you know spend a little time talking to them, but I think this time it's more like a high wave where you just go along and you wave at them. But I mean, to get that little 5 seconds of eye contact is totally worth it. <laughs> for us anyway. To other people it sounds crazy, but it's definitely worth it for us.
2: Emotion,
4: passion, and like effort that they put in cuz they do this for years. And like when you do something like you put you're dedicated to it it shows in results and like most of the groups that I do stand they show a lot and they put a lot and they like suffered a lot to like make us happy and that's pretty much it for me like you've seen the commitment that those yes artists put like in. things that make us happy like while we're in a sad moment so we could turn to them to look at it that's like the dedication that they put in for us to receive. Um, us to travel this far uh-huh. to also to get it in live.
2: ATs, in my opinion, um, have done so much to help me through um, 2019 through 2022. They've been there for me more than most people would ever think. They were at my comfort zone, so I'm very appreciative of them every day. So anything to help them and all that.
6: In the fall, Strictly Business dove into the heart of LA's mayoral race with an interview with candidate Rick Caruso. Caruso, a longtime real estate developer in the region, was only too eager to speak to Variety's Hollywood audience. He's well aware of how this industry powers so much of the region. We made efforts to do a podcast interview with Karen Bass in the late summer and early fall. Now that she is Los Angeles' mayor, Bass is high on our wish list for 2023 guests. Meanwhile, there are rumblings that Caruso is not done seeking elected office in the Golden State. Have you given much thought to how, you know, part of your role, obviously, or were you to be elected mayor, part of your role as being an ambassador is selling Los Angeles? Yeah. Given a sense of how you would use the incredible creative economy here as a selling tool for Los Angeles outside of of California?
16: Well, I do believe that the mayor of Los Angeles has to be a cheerleader for Los Angeles and use every tool they have in their toolbox in order to do that. And the entertainment industry is fascinating to people, right? It's
6: there's a lot of interest. Yes, (laughs) there's a lot of
16: interest because it's it's magic land and it's the creation of magic and people want to be a part of that. And of course, I'm going to do that and pull in not only the talent, but pull in the creative people the above the line, below the line to attract other businesses to come here and be part of it. You know, this is what i'm one of the things i'm so excited about is we get the entertainment industry heading in the right direction where more is happening in los angeles it just builds the economy create jobs again below and the line and above the line mm-hmm. new development goes on more housing happens right and the lure as you said of hollywood is really powerful
6: we closed out the year with behind the velvet rope access to two companies on the polar ends of the talent representation sector. APA is going into its 60th year in business, and it's ready to take some new big swings as it sorts through the opportunities that have come through the recent acquisition of ICM Partners by CAA. A few miles away from APA's offices, Peter Michelli and Jack Wiggum are busy trying to build range media partners into the talent management agency of the future we will close with APA's Jim Gosnell being extremely candid about his dealings with the Justice Department during their review of CAA's acquisition of ICM Partners. And that is followed by my favorite closing moment of any Strictly Business episode this year, courtesy of Jack Wiggum and his mom.
17: I got to be honest, the conversations were borderline ridiculous. in how they thought about the business works that CAA and ICM are gonna have such a hold on the business, they're gonna be able to go to Netflix and tell them what they're gonna buy and when they're gonna buy it and who's gonna star in it and all of that. And I said, you are so wrong. It's not how it works. I can only tell you, there was one call there's five lawyers on the phone and they're going, you were quoted as saying that this is good for them and it's gonna be great for you. Do you stand by that? I go, no, that was an understatement. It's gonna be fantastic for us. I said, you don't get it. Clients will become available. Agents will become available. You know who knows how that's all going to shake out. But it creates an opportunity for everybody. It's who decides to take advantage of it or not. And I, I, I said you didn't care about Disney and you know Fox getting together. That didn't bother you. Why is this such a big deal?
6: And I want to also say thank you to Jack's mom for making us a delicious plate of pumpkin bread of which I have had two pieces and I'm going to go in for a third
13: before I leave Pete's had four so that's a shout out that's a shout out to Beth Wigum who uh, Beth made pumpkin bread thank you uh, even Wiggum. with a hurt back so love you mom
6: well that was the year that was thanks for listening to this review of 2022 we're excited to hit our fifth anniversary and episode number 250 in the first half of 2023. Here's to a prosperous new year for all. We'll be back next week with another episode of Strictly Business.
1: you sent off today.